Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm here again with Yusuf Oyne. What's up? Hey, Toby. Two things this morning, uh, top of mind, it was minus eight Celsius outside here in Helsinki. No snow, but super duper cold. Wow. Do, do, do you know how much that is in Fahrenheit? Because I have zero idea. I can figure it out in a couple of minutes, but no, I don't let's, know. Let's say it's minus 60 Fahrenheit because that, that sounds really, really cold. But But besides that, and I'm not planning on leaving the house anytime soon, but besides that, I built a super small, but perhaps useful automation for, for my own time management. And I, I like to think I'm, I'm fairly good with managing my time. But the challenge that I've had for, I, I think for the past few years now, is that there's a non-trivial amount of fixed tasks and checks and balances I have to do each week. But I, I cannot automate those tasks and checks because they go something like this. On which of the following seven days will kid number two attend basketball practice? And do I need to pick anybody else up depending on if they're healthy or not, or if they have time to do the practice? And what's the target city for that practice? And do we need to do any other tasks at the same time for the kid to go to the practice, like doing groceries on the side? And if he needs to be picked back up home or not? So, so these sort of super dynamic tasks that, that you simply cannot just automate or, or have like a fixed uh, task on the calendar. So what I did is uh, I wanted to take this pressure off my mental list of things to do. And I built a small automation with, with Logic Apps and it used a fairly easy template to fix this sort of optimized list of things on a Sunday evening for me. Then on Sunday evening, I can open that list and I can start ticking off the things that I need to check and, and verify and, and sort of uh, collaborate with other people. Do we do this? Do we do that? Who's doing this? And I, I found just using this for a couple of weeks now, I found that I don't need to mentally manage about 15 tasks during the week if I can just put them all together on a Sunday evening and spend 25 minutes on that, and then it's done. So it's, it's not super fancy, but something this simple seems, seems to ease up a lot in how you need to manage your time. I like this idea. So I'm doing something similar with Microsoft To-Do. And you know my, my better half also has Microsoft To-Do, and we have a couple of shared lists. So we have some shopping lists and we have some activity lists and we have lists for house renovations and things like that. And then once in a while, uh, usually two or three times per week, I go in, spend about five minutes to get things in sync and add the things we need to attend to, you know, or take action on or go, go by or go visit and whatever activities. I guess it's a similar approach and it takes everything off of my mind. So I can kind of forget about it until I get the notification a day ahead or a couple of hours ahead or whatever I set the notification on. So I, I like that approach. And, and I've been doing this for years with calendar entries in my email as well. So whenever there's something I need to do for work or I need to block time or if there's something 
even if it's just an activity like catch up on that email, the lengthy email that will require quite an effort to reply to, I'll put that as a blocker and a, either a planner item or just block it in the calendar and kind of make room for it. And then I can f forget about it until that calendar entry actually appears. So a similar situation. And I, I like this idea. Anything that can really get things off of your mind, for me at least helps, because then I can really focus on what I'm doing right now with, with knowing that I'm not forgetting about things that I had in my mind or, or that I was thinking about. So pretty cool. Perhaps the challenge that I had, especially with Microsoft To Do, was that I couldn't find a way to have this sort of a recurring template for each week, because you often craft this list, then, you, then, then when you check them off the list, then comes next week and you're like, well, I need the same sort of same items again. And perhaps this is feedback to Microsoft. I should probably use, they don't have user voice now, but there's probably a different feedback channel that I should pitch yeah. my great idea and hopefully they'll implement this. Yeah, I mean, we're doing the low level implementation of that ourselves. So whenever we complete tasks, we have one list for recurring activities really. And uh, whenever we tick something off the next week, like you mentioned on the Sunday, we go back into the list and we can just untick them and then we have them afresh again. Optimal, perhaps not, but it works. And we have the life in order and life in balance. So, you know, whatever does the trick, in, in this case, it's more about the human interaction than it is about the technology, I think. So as long as we're on the same page and we manage to you know, stay in sync with how we use it, then uh, you know, it works. So on my side, uh, I've been, uh, currently I'm leading the efforts for a company for security and compliance, and I'm super excited. Um, compliance perhaps is usually not something you get super excited about because it's all about following all the strict rules that could be perhaps a bit abstract at some point. And perhaps you've also heard me mention compliance a few times in the podcast and bringing an entire company over the threshold for various controls in regulatory frameworks, it's not an easy feat, but it also uh, shows commitment and that we're growing stronger as a team too. So one thing that I, one of my takeaways with this is when we do this, you know, it's leading the effort means pretty much understanding where we are, where we need to go, the missing pieces. But then everyone in the company or a lot of people that, that are running their departments in the company need to uh, chip in from various angles. And it really brings the team together. And we have this great dynamic cross departments and, and cross teams now. And I guess also we finally realized as a company, as a whole, that compliance is not something that you can have as an afterthought. We really need to focus on that now. So we're getting everyone on board. And, and this is really exciting. So it's really a journey, and I'm hoping we'll reach the first milestone soon. And when we do, I will make sure to mention that as well, because I'm already proud of everyone in the team, how far we've gotten. Uh, and I'm super excited, actually, to to see the results and hopefully do the uh, one of the um, public audits soon so we can pass one of the regulatory frameworks, You know, pride ourselves with a, a cool badge on the website saying, hey, we pass all of these things. So... For several years, we've already done things in the cloud according to security best practices and you know, configured all the firewalls and configured this and configured that and ensure that code has security built in, uh, shifting left and, and you know, a good DevSecOps process or a secure SDLC. So we have these things in place, but the compliance side of things mandates that it's also documented and that you have a process in place and, you know, takes care of uh, a lot of the softer things or the more abstract things. 
So in, in Azure Security Center or Microsoft Defender for Cloud, which is the new name of, of that, which I'm super happy that I remembered, then you get a lot of help for how to technically implement these things. Like you should have the firewall here. You should not allow this. You should disable non-HTTPS traffic. You should do this, this, this. And all of these are technical implementations of something related to the resources you have. But then there's the entire compliance side of things. Like how do you ensure data encryption? How do you, who has access to your systems? And um, do you have documented processes for data backups and recovery and data retention, data deletion, all these things? Uh, things that are perhaps not easy for any tool to just randomly discover. So the the journey is exciting, but it also makes you realize uh, if there's any missing gaps and then we can deal with them. So I'm totally uh, excited to see where we can take this. Uh, we're on, on a good track and I'm, I'm learning a lot as well. So it's pretty cool. This sounds exciting. Uh, I can't help but but recall from about three years ago, our mutual friend Jasper was sitting next to me at a conference that this was still the time, uh, time that, that we did in-person events. And I was about to go on stage to talk about compliance and, and governance in Microsoft 365. And, and, and our friend asked, hey, Yusi, what's the topic? that you had, and I was super excited about the new features and, and controls. And while he was listening on the title of my session, he pretended to fall asleep because he felt it's so boring because it's not flashy. It's it's not <laughs> something you can physically see. And Local I still features. remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I still remember that it was fun. Alrighty. So today, this is episode 108, Controlled Havoc with the Azure Chaos Studio. And we spoke about chaos engineering uh, at a general level during episode 37. So how would you describe, perhaps somebody's listening on this who did not listen on episode 37, and that was quite some time ago. Toby, how would you describe what chaos engineering is? Uh, so uh, chaos engineering, I would describe as something where you try to adopt a process to um, make sure you, your applications and the things you build are faults tolerant. And by faults tolerance, in this case, I, I mean faults that are perhaps outside of your control. So when you run things in the cloud, you have, maybe you've heard, and we talked about this in some episodes as well, you can have transient faults and intermittent failures in services, or there's a lag on the network, or the, your Azure Key Vault is being throttled, or you know, whatever, there, there can be a secrets expiring. There's a lot of things that can happen that's outside of the control of you as a developer or, or the team building the application. So it's it can be really hard to test for all kinds of scenarios that can happen in the cloud. You can, of course, build integration tests and, and various unit tests for making sure that secrets don't expire. And if they expire, you can handle it gracefully. But all of the scenarios that you can think of, it's really difficult to build this into an application. So chaos engineering is, you know, it's about measuring and understanding things that can impact your application based on incidents you have in the real world. And these incidents can be, you know, anything from CPU being 100% or a service being throttled, or like I mentioned before, a secret is expiring, things like that. So you can perform like business continuity or disaster recovery drills to ensure that if the application were impacted by perhaps a major disaster, you could recover quickly and you know preserve the, the critical data. So one, th one option here is, for example, when you use chaos engineering, you can say, all right, we have a database, but now it's gone. What's going to happen? 
you know, because pretty much that's chaos, right? Because the application expects the connection string to the database to give you access to the database. But what if the database is no longer there? What if someone deleted it? How do you deal with that? So chaos engineering is about making sure your application can handle a lot of kind of unexpected things or things that can happen outside of the control of the application. But also for you as a team and as a company and coming back a little bit to the compliance side, how do you deal with disaster recovery? How do you deal with data backups? So if you can simulate, you know, the database being gone or no longer be accessible or you have corrupt data, how do you deal with that? Not just how the application deals with that, but how do you as a team and your company deal with that? Because if you're a SaaS service company and you offer this service to 5,000 customers and all of a sudden your database is gone, well, then you have 5,000 paying customers who cannot use it anymore. And then you broke your SLA, you broke all the contracts and you're in a, well, not a nice position. So the sooner you can realize things like that, the better. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of example of, you know, when you should use something like Chaos Studio. So Chaos Studio, like you, like you mentioned here, this is Azure or Microsoft's way of bringing in chaos engineering to to us in a lot easier uh, a lot easier way because traditionally at least the way we try to adopt it is it was like a framework kind of like agile right and you don't use one tool and you get agile you have to have everyone on board all the developers you have to have product manager product owner you know all the stakeholders need to kind of embrace the same methodology in a sense and with chaos engineering, I felt that this was the same thing. I could not spend my time alone with chaos engineering if nobody else was on board. With the chaos studio, I think this bridges the gap a little bit. And you you can use that as a tool, if you will, to uh, to test some of these real world incidents on the resources that you have. So I, I think it's running as a service. And you can say inside of the service, hey, I want to target this VM and then run some experiments or you know, set up some some failure stuff. So, um, you know, the TLDR, I would say that you build confidence in services built on cloud-native architectures. And I think we also spoke about that in one episode, that you build cloud-native, everything runs in the cloud. And oftentimes you hear, just put it in the cloud, you know, run it in a function, it's going to be fine. It never breaks, you know, whatever. You don't have to deal with infrastructure. The truth is, and I've operated these things for many years now, and built them and designed and planned for them. There's a lot of things that go wrong regularly. We have intermittent faults. We have outages. There are unexpected downtimes. There are memory loss. There's CPU spikes. There's intermittent database access problems or latency on the network. And there's one of the key components we use is an Azure Key Vault. It's being throttled a lot. So we had to put multiple key vaults in different regions to support our you know, different deployments in different regions and, and to kind of spread the load. And there's a lot of things that perhaps when you build the application, you don't take into consideration. So I think the short story with Azure Chaos, and, uh, Chaos Studio is to kind of help you simulate some of these things so you can better prepare for them when it hits production. Yeah, I can, I can buy into that. And Azure Chaos Studio, this was announced during Ignite and it's available as of today. And the best thing is it's free. So, so there's, there's no upfront cost in using this, but you do pay for the resources you utilize or consume through the tool. So considering if you have five virtual machines, you obviously pay for whatever those incur in cost 
but if you then overutilize those VMs, there might be additional cost attached to that overutilization of that. But beyond this, using Azure Chaos Studio, configuring it, running the Chaos experiments, they are free of charge. So what does it support then? Can I, can I utilize Chaos Studio for anything? Or is it for specific Azure resources? Because you already mentioned it's for cloud-based architectures. Yeah. So like cloud native apps is, you know, one of the things you target. But unfortunately, you cannot use it for everything because I already tried to see if I could use this for my Azure Key Vaults, my storage accounts, my PostgreSQL databases, and a couple of other things that I'm, I'm using where I know there are regular intermittent issues you can there's a list of supported resource types and currently those are virtual machines uh, virtual machine scale sets cosmos db aks or azure kubernetes services network security groups and azure cache for VDs. and that's the end of the list so if you do run a lot of workloads on vms and servers then this can be really impactful for you and, and cosmos db of course and aks there's a lot of stuff running in there or your NSGs or network security groups. I think this is also a great way where you can tamper a bit with, you know, what happens if in this scenario, what happens in that scenario, and you can kind of impact those those resources. And the same with the cache, you know, what happens what happens when you have a cache outage or the cache is unresponsive or stuff like that. But that's it. You you cannot do it currently. Cannot do it at, at least for like an app service uh, or or an Azure Key Vault because to me, Azure Key Vault is the most centerpiece component we have in anything across all of our deployments because all sensitive data goes in there we have certificates we have keys we have secrets and all of them are spread out and key vaults unfortunately cannot withstand a lot of traffic because we do hundreds of millions of of requests per week and at the end of the month we have billions i think last month i look at looked at the metrics and we did 8 billion transactions across our cloud services so there's a portion of that which goes to Key Vault and say, hey, I need to get a secret, I need to get a decryption key, uh, you know, whatever. So I would love if it supported that. So I could say, hey, what happens if that Key Vault is no longer responding? Or if it's responding with, a, a, you know, an, an expired key, or if it says no access or, you know, stuff like that. And we simulate th this ourselves in a way, like I mentioned, the the methodology of chaos engineering we can adopt. And sometimes in our QA environment, we go and say, you know what, now we're revoking access to the key vault. What happens? And then we figure out what happens and then we can kind of take action and, and countermeasures. But to come back to the point of what, you know, what's supported inside of chaos studio specifically, the recap is VMs or virtual machines, VM scale sets, Cosmos DB, AKS network security groups, and Azure cache for readers. That's it. Okay. So, Two questions here. Let me ask the first one first. Are you supposed to use chaos engineering like Azure Chaos Studio only against production environments? Or can you also use this for testing or development environments? I think there is no one truth to that. For, for us, the way we try to adopt the, the methodology of chaos engineering, at least to, to some extent, we do this in QA and to some extent then in production because our QA is 100% replica of our production. It is set up exactly the same uh, with the main difference of no user data and no user load. So the database, the structure, the security, the perimeter, everything is exactly the same. A different domain name, no users uh, or, or no customer data. So we can simulate this 
on our QA environment. And I would rather do that to feel confident that we can really break it and really test it and figure things out there before we move to production. But when you're already in production, then you can also use this toward production resources and see you know, what's going to happen. But anything that impacts production and, and real users, I would always be wary and, and careful because, I mean, we have an SLA with customers and say, you have if you have this or that much downtime, you know, 99 point whatever, uh, if your app is not available during X amount of minutes per week or per month, then you broke the SLA, right? And, and that's perhaps not ideal if you go to your production workflows and start tests, that would break it. So you have to be careful here. Um, for me, sure, testing production if you do controlled tests. And, and that's also... What I think the Chaos Studio is is good at in a way, because you can set up something called an experiment, and here you can say, step number one, inject a fault, fault one, and that is going to put the CPU pressure to 99% on all the processes, and it's going to run for 10 minutes, and then you select where it's going to be applied. So like uh, my service VMs or whatever VMs supporting the yeah, whatever you're doing with the VM. Then it's going to spin up your CPU to 99% for 10 minutes and see how your application can handle that. Because then you might have unresponsive load times, you might have intermittent faults, you might have uh, users stuck in the application and just seeing a spinning loader or the application just goes down entirely. All of these things that are super hard to find in development, you can now simulate and, and actually find. Um, back to the question, do you only do it in production? No, uh, we do this in QA. And, and and then to some extent also in production, but sure you can you can target whatever you want. But again, as long as you know what you're doing and do controlled experiments, don't just say okay now raise the bar to 100% CPU on all the resources I have, and then you go take a coffee. If you do this in production and the entire system goes down, well, you're going to be in trouble, and I don't want to be in that kind of trouble. So another question on this one, I sort of mentally often segregate Azure customers in two camps one camp being that a company utilizes azure to run some of their offerings for their customers perhaps a platform as a service based web app and and database offering some sort of service that's one camp and the second camp is customers who simply utilize azure as a replacement for their data center so do you feel that something like Azure Chaos Studio could be used for both camps, or is it mainly intended for companies offering their services on top of Azure to their own customers instead of just running their internal services? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. And already when you ask this, I have a lot of use cases for both. Um, so, uh, you know, we offer SaaS services to our customers and we utilize the platform as a service stuff in, in Azure. We build cloud native applications. So it's an obvious choice for us because we offer things to our customers. We're option one there. We, that's what we do. We offer uh, stuff on top of Azure as a service for customers. So they can go to app.companyname.com and they can sign into the SaaS service and they can do whatever, uh, which is our applications uh, exposed to the customer. And they're all built on top of Azure. So definitely for people offering some kind of service running on top of Azure, but also for companies running Azure only for internal users. I know companies, when I was a consultant, I worked with some big companies. Uh, one company uh, had 200,000 employees and they had a lot of internal tools. And 
you know, a, a company of that size, 200,000 employees that you need to support building applications. In that case, uh, we built applications on top of their intranets. You know, you might have 10,000 users per day visiting your app. And perhaps that's even a higher impact than a SaaS service where you might have 500 users. So even if, if it's not offered as a SaaS service to external parties, it is just as important to make sure that your internal apps run. But again, it depends on the criticality. So I, I wouldn't say that you should adopt Chaos Studio for the sake of adopting it or trying it out or you need to have it. It's always depending on the criticality and, and priorities of those resources. So if you have an internal app for 200,000 users, and if it goes down for a week, it's okay. Well, there you go, right? Then you can make a decision to maybe prioritize different things or other things. If you have a, an app where if it goes down, you're going to lose money or your the company or a couple of teams are going to be at standstill, well, then you might need to prioritize that. Um, so I, this is what I saw with some of the enterprise companies that I used to work with that for the internal uh, applications supporting thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. Sometimes it could be down for two weeks and nobody cared because it was a nice to have feature like announcing news inside of a, a widget or a, a web part inside of a news portal for the company. If that went down or if that didn't display updated news, the company would be okay with that. Uh, as opposed to if the access to planning the budget would be inaccessible. And, you know, then you delay your budget or your Q1 reporting, then, you know, that's pretty critical and, and actually can be pretty devastating if they cannot use those tools. So I would say it depends on the criticality and it does fit both customer types. Customers running services or offering services to, to others like a SaaS service like we do. And also the, the enterprises and companies supporting in-house and, and internal applications to all your users definitely makes sense. And perhaps it's it's also easier to plan these outages or simulated outages for your internal applications than it is for a SaaS service where you have an SLA established with multiple customers. Whereas internally, depending on your company structure, of course, uh, you might only have a, a few customers, internal customers, or they are not even customers at all, depending on your organizational structure. And then perhaps you can plan for maintenance work. And during that maintenance window, you run your experiments. We cannot do that in production. We cannot tell paying customers, hey, by the way, we're going to run some chaotic experiments on the web app and it's going to be down for a while. We can do that in our QA environment and we can to some extent do this in production, but not to the extent where we actually break it and make it unavailable because then we're going to be in, in you know, a heap of problems coming our way. I, yeah. I hope that cleared up uh, <laughs> some of that. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can definitely buy into this one. So you mentioned the experiments, and and I feel that's key for for Azure Chaos Studio. You build one or more experiments in a in a type of a workflow. To to me, the designer looks an awful lot like SharePoint designer based workflows <laughs> used to look like. So it's it's not like what Logic Apps gives you. It's it's more on on the sort of old school. If this happens, then do this. And and you mentioned the different type of faults. So there's about 20 faults built in, like CPU pressure or kill a specific process in a VM. My favorite though is DNS failure, because that's yeah. that's always <laughs> something you sort of expect to work. And once DNS fails or there's a missing record from there, all sorts of weird issues start happening. And, and it, it's sometimes really, really tough 
to track those down. Have you have you tried that any of these yet in practice? I know the service is relatively fresh. I I haven't done it with Chaos Studio, but I have simulated some of these things. Like I mentioned before, sometimes we go and we revoke all the access to a key vault to see what happens. Uh, so we can kind of handle that situation. And and even if handling it means like if the key vault goes down, we're screwed, right? Because we have all this stuff in there that's sensitive and we don't cache this, we don't put it on disk, we don't keep this in memory. Like if key vault goes down, we cannot access a lot of stuff. So we sometimes we do that ourselves and not through the Azure Chaos Studio because it doesn't support key vault. DNS failures, we have done this to to some extent by kind of removing uh, the C name or doing some other things related to the domain names we're using. But otherwise, it's pretty hard for us to simulate that easily. So I really like this um, and, and the capability to have this now built in. So I, I know there's a list of so like the faults you can do, and you mentioned about 20 of them, and it's yeah, there's there's a long list of, of great things. So I, I like the DNS failure, like you mentioned, because it's difficult to test this in, in development. CPU pressure, you can say that, well, put all the VMs on 99% or put the front-end VM on 99% or 100%, whatever. You can do physical memory pressure, virtual memory pressure, disk IO pressure, and you can say, put the disk under heavy load right now, see what's going to happen. Then maybe everything slows down, maybe it doesn't impact. You know, it depends on your application and what, what you're making use of. If you're using disk IO intensive workloads, then it makes sense to, to run disk IO pressure and say, now put the disk under such heavy load that it goes over or near the threshold of the IOPS for your VM. See if your VM has an allocated amount of IOPS it can do or operations for IO uh, per second, and you go above that, well, things are going to break or slow down significantly. Uh, so, so this is a, a great way to test that. You can also do things like stop window services you can change the time on the VM. This is something fairly critical, I would say, for a lot of applications, because if you use the built-in time and your code runs daytime.utcnow.whatever, and then you change the time of the VM to be one hour ahead or back or even a day ahead or back or in a different time zone, all of the data you have might be corrupt or have incorrect timestamps. So you can kind of simulate those things. You can kill processes, see what happens. You can uh, inject network latency and you can and connect networks. And you can do like network disconnect with firewall rule. Uh, you can shut down virtual machines with ARM. Uh, you have customers DB failover triggers. So there's a lot of things you can try that's already built in. I'm sure we're going to see a lot more things in this area, but those are some of the examples. So um, I haven't used it in practice, again, because my workloads or the critical workloads we have are not yet supported. But I really like this. So you can kind of inject these faults into the process. And it really happens with this experiment that you mentioned. You you just create a, a bunch of steps in this editor and you say, you know, step number one, we're going to put a CPU pressure on 99% on all the processes for 10 minutes on this selector. And a selector in this case is where you go and say, my front-end VMs equals the resource ID one, two, three, four, five, my five front-end VMs, that's my selector one called perhaps my front-end VMs. And then for, for the steps, you say that's the selector, my front-end VMs. And then for fault number two, you can inject something else. Perhaps you want to put the disk IO under pressure. And, and then in step number three and step number four, you can just keep injecting different faults and, and see what happens and see when it fails, where it fails, and due to which faults it fails. So it's a, it's a pretty straightforward 
experience. And like a chaos experiment is an Azure resource that lives inside of the subscription and resource group. And you can use the Azure portal or the Chaos Studio REST APIs to create, update, start, cancel, view the status of experiments and stuff like this. So it's, you really have a lot of options for, for how to start using this. I did a quick configuration test with that with the service, and I realized that you need to register Microsoft.Chaos resource provider for the subscription or subscriptions you're planning on using. For me, in a couple of my Azure subscriptions, it took a few minutes to actually get that registered. And then if you want to utilize the, the experiments against VMs, you need to create a managed identity so that the managed identity has enough permissions to tinker with your VMs. So for that, you need the virtual machine contributor role assigned for your managed identity. I was missing on this one and the experiment kept failing. And then I added the permission, but it still kept failing. So you sort of have to go back and re-edit the experiment to, to sort of tell Chaos Studio that yes, the permissions are in place now, please reconfirm this setting. Then it started working. And, and you mentioned the REST API. Uh, I haven't used that, but what I do like about it is that you can run and list also the experiments that you have. So this would give you a sort of integration point. Let me schedule something externally or in a logic app or something else. And then let's call to these five select chaos experiments that we have. Let's run those. Let's get the report and then figure out what we want to do. So you don't just have to do this manually. You can also automate the whole process once you have the experiments configured. Alrighty, this is this is interesting. Uh, we'll add the critical links, like the the different faults you can use, and what type of resources you can use. We'll add those to the show notes. And the last thing we have is the unexpected question. And Toby, it's your turn this week. Okay, so I. I have an interesting and I think unexpected question for you today. But I've thought about this a lot. Uh, well, I didn't think about it a lot in, in terms of what would I do or I should do something, but it's, it's uh, you can contemplate a lot on this type of question. So here goes. What secret conspiracy would you like to start? So imagine you could start any type of conspiracy and a lot of people would follow, you know, no questions asked. You're just going to start a conspiracy and people will follow it. What would you start? Oh, this is a good question. There's there's so many ideas I've, I've, I would like to start as, as a secret conspiracy. One was just yesterday. <clears throat> I, I was on the move the whole day and I was working briefly from a lunch cafe. I had lunch first and I had my laptop open and, and did a few emails. Somebody next to me on the next table was doing a full-blown Teams or Zoom call with 15 people with, with the speaker on. <laughs> so, so I was thinking, yeah, I'd, I'd really like people to believe that you shouldn't be doing this in a, in a public place. But beyond that, I, I think what I'd like to do, and, and I, I learned or heard about this from my Belgian friend Thomas the other week. He asked me, do I know what RDP and SSH stand for? And I was like, yeah, obviously I know. It's Remote Desktop and Secure Shell. No, no, no. RDP stands for really dope. And SSH stands for such a shame. So my, <laughs> yes. my secret conspiracy would be 
that what you knew as RDP and SSH has been all wrong for the past 25 years. These are the new names for those. Okay, so when someone says you have to log into the terminal, you say, oh, such a shame, and then you log in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or is there a really dope setup? Okay, then I can access that. But yes, this this would be my secret conspiracy. Okay, that's a good conspiracy. Good I, I can support that one. <laughs> Great. Good stuff. Uh, thank you again for joining us, and we hope you join us next week. Thanks. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.